to the fall. The fall's here. You know, whenever More Than the Score kicks off, we know it's fall. Uh, so we're glad you're here. Welcome to More Than the Score. This, um, we've been doing this since 2006. Is that right, Wayne? Wayne, the back 2005, we had a pilot, and the first full year was 2006. Um, how many of you remember the first year, was here the first year when we were out on the front lawn? Anyone? There's a few back here, yeah. How about in the Jefferson room across the hall? Anyone remember that? Well, look how much we've grown. It's pretty awesome. We're now doing it on Fridays. So I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Senior Director of Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. And we partner with the Alumni Association in offering you this great lecture series during the fall before each home football game. So thank you and welcome. We have a great speaker with us uh, this afternoon, this evening, uh, Philip Bourne, um, and he's with the uh, Data Science um, Institute, and we'll be introducing him in just a few minutes. But go ahead and give him a real more than the score welcome. I also wanted to announce that this summer we were really fortunate. We had two uh, more than the score fans, someone who comes all the time, two uh, gentlemen who came up and said, hey, we'd like to help support your bagels or breakfast or reception. Um, so they're, they're partly um, helping us out. They're helping us out partly with our um, expenses for the refreshments. Um, they want to remain anonymous, um, but I said we're going to thank you anyhow. So go ahead and give them a thanks. <laughs> How many of you know what's um, free for you may not be free for us? <laughs> Someone's paying for it. So they stepped up, and I'm just so grateful, so grateful. A few housekeeping tips. If you would, go ahead and silence the ringer on your cell phones. Just go ahead and power it down for an hour and enjoy the talk. Um, also, you remember those trusted little orange uh, feedback cards that we normally pass out and ask for your comment or your feedback? Um, you didn't receive one of those today. You know why? Because we're going to be sending you an electronic digital uh, feedback um, survey right after today's lecture. And if you'll take a moment over the weekend, give us your comments on Monday, and we'll, um, we'll accept those uh, gratefully. Thank you. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome and introduce our speaker for the, for the afternoon, Philip Bourne. He's the Stevenson Chair of Data Science and the Director of Data Science Institute and Professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. From 2014 to 2017, Bourne was the Associate Director for Data Science at the National Institutes of Health, NIH. In this role, he led the Big Data to Knowledge Program, the Big Data to Knowledge Program, coordinating access and analyzing biomedical research from across the globe and making it available to scientists and researchers. While there, he was also responsible for governance and strategic planning activities for data, for data and knowledge management. Prior to his time at NIH, Bourne spent 20 years on the faculty of the University of California in San Diego, eventually becoming Associate Vice Chancellor of Innovation and Industrial Alliances. He is highly respected, and I went through tons of information on the website. He's got a lot of stuff out there. He's been, doing, he's been quite busy. He's highly respected and often cited scholar who brings a wealth of experience to UVA. Please help me welcome and thank Philip Bourne uh, to speak with us today. Help me thank him and welcome him to more than the score. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everyone. How are we doing? Who's here supporting William and Mary? Thank goodness for that. Okay, we'll get to that later. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little about uh, the idea of data science and what's going on, what it means, what it means to you, what it means to UVA. Uh, and really, I no longer like giving talking head talks. So I'm much more interested in engaging you in a discussion than I am in having you just, you could, you could look at me up on YouTube and you could watch any endless stuff if you cared. So here's an opportunity to have a bit of a dialogue, ask any questions you might have 
as it relates to what we're doing here at UVA or uh, just the notion more generally. So I just want to be, I'm here to be helpful uh, and ha hopefully we'll all have a good time. Okay, so why all the fuss? What is this thing about data science and what's going on? Um, I've been here about two and a half years. I, I never played football, I have to say. I played Australian rules football, uh, uh, which is a good game as well, but uh, I'm a bit beyond uh, any other games right now. So, but when I, so I've only been here a short time, but when I got here, I met uh, the governor at the time, Terry McAuliffe, at least twice in about the first three weeks I was here. I, I was memorable for two things. Firstly, he told exactly the same jokes each time I saw him. <laughs> and secondly, he used these phrases. They're not his phrases, but the fact that he was saying them, I think, was really encouraging for the state of the, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Sorry, too long in California. Uh, so things like data is the, or are the new oil. Uh, data are the new soil. Uh, so this is like fundamental to what's happening uh, in society, as fundamental as oil was and as the soil is in various ways. And that kind of led, why is that? Well, that led, you know, we'll get into what's happening, why this has come about, but it led to expressions like big data, and you've probably seen this in various forms. So this is how people, this is what the fuss is all about. It's, a, it's about fundamental change in society. Then the question becomes, well, how fundamental is it? Before we get to that, I think we need to say, well, how, you know, what's the growth? What's going on here? And th the slides don't really matter. It's, it's really it's just visioning what's actually happening. But as you can see, that 90% of all the data on Earth, digital data, has been collected in the last two years. And that number changes you know, in less than two years. So it's growing, continues doubling in, in less and less time. This leads to a fundamental change in, what, in, in society as a result. What we've had for quite a long time that goes back a long way is the notion of enterprise data, which comes from companies and so on. But now what we have are different types. We have voice over IP. So essentially, <laughs> every conversation is effectively turned into digital form and stored somewhere. We'll get to all the scary implications in a minute. Um, and then there's the social media data, which you all know so well. We just had a talk today up the road from uh, someone from Facebook who's clearly uh, involved in social media and social data and obviously very concerned about what's happening. We'll get to that too as well. And then perhaps what you don't think about so much, but which is all around you and is increasing dramatically, is this notion of what's called the Internet of Things, where increasingly data is coming from all types of different sensors. Your car already uh, is full of sensors. Some of that data is actually being transmitted already to the car companies. We're going to get to an instance of that in a minute. Uh, and of course, in your home, things like what's happening with your thermostat, what's increasingly happening with your security system, all of this stuff, this is all data that's being collected and used. So just to give you some parameters on how much we're talking about, in the last 60 seconds, uh, which is only a tiny fraction of the boring amount of things I've said to you already, um, we've had 98,000 tweets, half of them from the President of the United States, but that's another story. Uh, 695 status up, 1,000 status updates on Facebook, 11 million instant messages, uh, 700,000 Google searches, 168 million emails in one minute, half of which seem to come to me, and I'm sure they come to you as well. But uh, and, uh, there's been huge amounts of data uh, created in that in that period of time. This is this is a fundamental uh, aspect. So this changes society. It's as profound. Of course, I drink my own Kool-Aid, and you'll make your own interpretation. But my interpretation is that this is as profound as what happened during the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and the computer revolution, which changed our society completely. And I would say that that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, and we're in the position of figuring out what we ought to be doing about it, particularly how we train people for the future, the kinds of research we do here, and so on. So I'm going to try and convince you of that a little uh, by giving you some examples of the change in different areas. Let's start with 
uh, what's called the six Ds. Okay, this is not my saying. This is, comes from a fellow called Peter Diamantis. And what he did was to sort of analyze what happens in, certain, in different areas. So I'm going to give you one industrial example. And it's what happens when data in a particular area grows exponentially. And the example I'm going to give you uh, relates to photography. So Kodak invented the digital camera. It was the size of a suitcase, but they invented it. They decided not to develop it at the time because they felt it was going to interfere with their chemical business, which, of course, was you know, very lucrative. So they basically didn't pay attention to the fact that others were developing digital cameras and digital photographs. The number of cameras, the number of photographs, the number of pixels on photographs was growing effectively exponentially. The reason they didn't realize it is because we're in this one along these Ds. So the first D is digitization. Then we go into this period of deception where people don't realize that change is happening. All right? Then we get to this inflection point um, where we have disruption. When that happens, the and that happened to Kodak, the film, mask, uh, the film business absolutely collapsed. Kodak effectively collapsed. Rochester itself, where Kodak's located, has actually made quite a comeback in other ways, which is, uh, I think, encouraging. But then some other interesting things happened. The industry changed completely. Photographs became essentially completely democratized. They were dematerialized. There was no material associated with them. And they became demonetized. There was, there was no value in a given photograph. But what there was value that hadn't existed before was the idea that suddenly we created a completely new communication mechanism to the point where some of you are taking photographs already that you know, Instagram now is, is valued higher than Kodak ever was, is one example. So we've seen a complete disruption in an industry, uh, and that's just one example, by virtue of this notion of digitization. So that's just an example from industry. Let me bore you for a second with a little example uh, from our, the research world. So this fellow here uh, is, is actually a Turing Prize winner. Okay? So, uh, and he, it's uh, Jim Gray. He actually, what's interesting, he disappeared. He went out sailing one day and he completely disappeared. And they gave a whole bunch of data people satellite images to try and actually locate him using all the algorithms they had to do that. They, they couldn't find him. He never, he never reappeared. So, you know, sometimes things fail. But before all that, he denoted this notion of what was called the fourth paradigm. So for 1,600 years, we had the notion of empirical science, which was really observation and making conclusions from observations. Then for a period of about 450 years, we went into the second paradigm, where we were concerned with um, you know, theoretical science, the laws of thermodynamics, Newton's laws of motion, all of these things that could be really well characterized. And then for about 50 years, we've had this third paradigm where computing has really changed the world. Now we're in the fourth paradigm, and it's all happened in less than 10 years, essentially, where data is the fourth paradigm, where we're actually making and, and doing work with large amounts of data uh, using all sorts of methods I'll briefly touch on, but as you well know, things like the notion of artificial intelligence and what that brings to, uh, to the process. This change is fundamentally research. And in my period of life, which is quite significant, um, that and having spent the majority of it in a university, I can tell you that I have never seen anything in my whole life in academia, 50 years or thereabouts, that matches anything like what we're seeing today. This kind of change as a result of data is changing everything. Right? Example that you wouldn't even think of, people studying history. How did people study history? They sat there for days on end, pouring through text, making notes, making conclusions. We now have machines that can do natural language processing that process very large amounts of text. All right? So what does that mean? It means you can answer questions like, where in the world is Francis Bacon? So what does that mean? It means Francis Bacon, as a historical figure, was at certain time points in history, and he met with certain people. 
you can now automatically build a whole social network for Francis Bacon. That doesn't preclude doing historical research. It just gives you a tool to start doing that research in an automated way that which previously would have taken you years to accomplish. That accelerates progress. So that's just one you know, trivial example. I have, I have a couple of other trivial examples. But that's a change in research. Here's my other trivial example. Okay, so I was sitting in a coffee shop and with skeptics, not that you're skeptics, but probably, the, you know, someone said to me, ah, oh, you know, this data science is rubbish, blah, blah, blah. I, I said, look, just point me at any object and I'll tell you a data science story about it. So he looks around and says, that blueberry muffin. I said, okay, blueberry muffin. Well, first of all, assuming it doesn't come from a packet, well, even if it comes from a packet, it's made by a machine. And that machine now typically, I mean, it's probably easy to think about different examples like automotive parts and things, but really what's happened is that there's a feedback loop now from that machine. So as things are made, they're actually evaluated and the, the, the machine learns from that evaluation. This is machine learning and essentially improves the quality of the product in principle by virtue of this machine learning. Right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is the pipeline. I mean, let's face it, you know, stuff shows up from Amazon. It shows up pretty timely. And, and this is really all about service and production pipeline. All of that in Amazon and many other companies now is controlled by machine learning algorithms that figure out where to put, where to put the distribution centers, what trucks you need, how much load you put on them, and all this kind of stuff to, uh, to actually define how to distribute materials in the most timely way. These are the jobs that your kids and grandkids are going to be uh, faced with, with doing and, and working on. So the supply chain aspect of it. And then the last piece, which really appeals to me, is you can go to Yelp now, and you probably do, and you say, oh, here's a bakery. What do they have to say? And it says, oh, they have nice blueberry muffins. Well, that's good. But what would you be able to do in a year or two? Oh, it's 10 past 11 in, morn in the morning. There's a 38.4% chance that they still have a muffin sitting on the shelf based on predictive modeling. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, we're, it's just around the corner. You know, you can, you can argue, and by the way, if you don't agree with anything I'm saying, or you, you know, feel free to yell out. I, uh, I, I, I enjoy that. Um, so how does this relate to your children and grandchildren? Well, right now we're in a situation... Uh, that 23% of educators uh, essentially are saying that graduates uh, need to have data science skills, data analytic skills. We'll get to exactly what data science is in a second. On the other hand, employers are saying that 69% are, are needed. The supply and the demand is completely out of whack. Okay? We can't train students fast enough to fill these kind of jobs. We have not been in a position, I just met a couple at the bar, I shouldn't be at the bar, but I was at the bar, um, <laughs> that basically their son went through our program two years ago. So far, we have not had a student who hasn't got a job through our Masters in Data Science program. And they're starting off on typically on salaries of the order of $100,000, and that ramps up pretty quickly. These are, these are you know, high-paying, good jobs. So that's, that's the na nature of the beast. We have an advisory board, and on that uh, advisory board is a fellow called Scott Stevenson. He actually endowed my chair. He's actually the CEO of a company called Verisk Analytics. Uh, he's also part of the Bicentennial campaign. He's one of the uh, vice chairs. And he, he's always full of great advice. So he said, Phil, you've got to realize that you have a supply chain here as well. You've got a supply and you've got a demand you are never going to be able to meet that demand with your, whatever supply you have. So you better figure out what it is you want to actually uh, do and what you want to supply. So that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do with our program, which I'll get to in a second. So our program is built around the idea of taking an institute that we had that's been around for five years, a data science institute, and turning in that into uh, a school of data science. So this, is, this tells you what... The university, it started with Terry Sullivan and has now continued with Jim Ryan and the new administrative team, thinks about the importance of this. So this is only the, think about it, this is only the 12th time in the history 
of the university that a new school has been formed. That's in 200 years. That's, you know, that's, this is a significant event. And it's not just to do with the fact that uh, Jaffrey and, and Merrill Woodruff were and their foundation was kind enough to give us the biggest gift in the university's history. When this was on the table and we went to Jim Ryan about this, Jim, in his uh, very thoughtful way, said, a gift does not make a school. You have to show me that this school is both financially sustainable and also that all the other deans want to have another school. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I, hear, uh, I hear mumblings in the audience. <laughs> it took a year to, to... It was easy to actually come up with a budget. It was harder to convince the, the deans. But everyone has come around, in part because data science, this thing I'm going to say, give you an example of in a second, touches everything. Okay. So let's... So this is for our, our, our draft strategic plan. So if all goes well, the final phase of actually the new school is, uh, will be uh, on the 16th and 17th of this month when SHEV, which is the, the, the Commonwealth body that looks uh, and approves such uh, new entities like this, uh, meets to discuss it. We don't anticipate any issue given uh, all the work that's gone in by teams here and also the fact there's such demand for this. So I think we're in good shape. So let me just, just to give you a sense of where we're thinking about this by reading this. The practice of data science through education, research, and service, whereby all aspects of these endeavors consider the ethical, legal, and policy aspects of all we do, such the reputation and integrity of the school of data science are never in question. That's what's driving us. And I'm going to say a little more about that integrity and, and, and societal benefit and these other things in a minute. But it's totally in alignment with everything that you sitting here with all your orange shirts represent. This is the essence, in, in my mind, of the university. I spent, you heard I spent uh, 20 years at UC San Diego. I spent 10 years at Columbia University in New York and a bunch of years at a university in Australia. And I can tell you there's nothing like this place. You, it's a very amazing and wonderful place. So it's just really, it just makes me really proud to be part of it. So uh, let's not forget about that. So what about where are we going to be? So who stayed at the, uh, at the, uh, I'm getting blank, oh, the Cavalier Inn? Who's, who stayed at the Cavalier Inn? Uh, <laughs> aren't you disappointed it's gone away? So <laughs> um, I never stayed there, but I, I, I used to think that every time I went past it. So... That whole Emmett, and some of you may know this already, but the Emmett Ivy Corridor is about 14 acres of land. Uh, so I can't, I don't really, maybe I do have a point, but I can't see it. So that, that bottom intersection there uh, is the corner of 250 and 29. And so uh, that's the corridor. It goes up that long line. The parking lot there, you can see if you can orientate yourself. So that whole area is going to be developed. This is the biggest development that the university is going to see in the next 20 or 30 years. And you may have seen that there's a whole planning process for that. Uh, the orange building there is block 1A, and that's where the new School of Data Science is going to be. Um, this is just a wonderful opportunity. We had uh, 29 architectural firms express interest in building out the site. I mean, they're not interested in just building one building. I was, they're actually interested in, in getting contracts for uh, things that are to come later. Right now, there's also a contract for a large uh, hotel and conference center that's going to wrap around the parking garage that's out there that some of you may have parked in. And so it's an opportunity to develop this whole site. And so we're, we're, do, we're calling this, in our own minds, open commons. So it's the idea that the community, all of you, uh, and you know, people are coming through... Uh, people of Charlottesville, people who are visiting at international conferences, our own uh, constituency of students, faculty and staff, all come there in an open manner. And we hope to have uh, things like data museums, exhibits and things that you can touch and play with and all that kind of stuff. These are all things that are bubbling along uh, as we think about developing the school. And I can tell you oodles about that if you're interested. But uh, and you can see on the right-hand side is this notion of what it's going to look like. So there's actually going to be a stream running down the middle, and there'll be uh, these buildings on either side. It's actually going to be quite spectacular. Um, and we, you know, we expect to break ground on this at some point next year. So that's where we're going to be housed. What is it we actually do? What is data science? 
I'm going to give you an example that I think illustrates it really well um, that just happened uh, to me a while back. So I'm sitting in my office right now. We're in these two red tin sheds. So this is going to mo moving to a nice building. It's really something to look forward to. Um, we are undoubtedly in the ugliest building on campus, uh, on grounds. It used to be uh, where they kept the lawnmowers. Uh, but it, it's, we're, we're, it's warm and cozy inside, let's put it that way. Anyway, I'm sitting in my little, little office, um, and someone knocks on the door and comes in saying, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yes. He said, I, I'm a trauma surgeon here in the health system. I said, really? He said, yeah, I have a data science problem. I said, really? Okay, tell me about it. So he says, well, you know, I've been doing trauma surgeries here for 20 years or more. And what happens is we, someone comes in, and quite often those are the result of car crashes. And when that person comes in, you know, typically a lot of those injuries are internal. The first thing we do is put them in a full body scanner because we have no idea what's happened to them. And some of those patients actually die in the scanner. So what, we, what I noticed over the years, if they recover and I talk to them, in my head I started to develop this notion of a correlation between the type of accident they've had and the type of injuries we subsequently find they have. So he says, I got interested enough in this, I try, started to do, if I could actually prove this mathematically. With a reason I'll get to in a second. So he said, what I did is I went into the electronic health record, which I have access to in the hospital, and I pulled out the various type of internal injuries and, and so on. And I then correlated that. I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Well, anyone who goes there for, you know, <laughs> what can I say? Um, but there's public data like there is in so many places. So he got data on all of the crash uh, victims and sites, not personal information, but certainly information that he could correlate together. The whole purpose of this is if it, what he wants to be able to do, and through these correlations, which we, st we started to help him with, with the tools of data science, he could you could actually say if the emergency services sent now, what is a photograph, very soon will be a 3D holographic uh, visualization to the emergency room before the patient got there, they'd be able to see the type of crash they would be able to correlate that with a particular type of, of internal injury most associated with that crash. And then they could actually focus on that area first and save lives. So I see that as the epitome of what data science is. It's the idea that you take, who would, have, who would have thought about taking data from the DMV and from the electronic health record in the hospital and pulling that together to do something new, something for societal benefit. I really like the story because he's essentially, in this context, a citizen scientist. He came at this as an individual really wanting to do something uh, positive for society. It, you know, it just doesn't, and I could, every day there's stories like that. You know, so it's, to me, it's really compelling. Of course, there are unforeseen consequences. And you know some of this, some of you read and watched documentaries about Cambridge Analytica and the things at Facebook and so on. These are real concerns, and I'll say a little more about that in a second. Just to give you an example of this, every newborn in the Commonwealth of Virginia has a blood spot to look for certain particular genetic markers. All right? One of those genetic markers is to look for sickle cell anemia. Well, then what happens, that data is pretty freely available. Not, not the patient, but uh, name and things like that, but certainly their zip code. You start putting that on a map of Virginia, and you start seeing particular areas where sickle cell is more, pre more prevalent. And that has to do with the fact that sick sickle cell is much more pre prevalent in certain ethnic populations. So unbeknownst, you've actually created an ethnic organized map uh, just by virtue of something that was you know, originally a blood spot. So this is, you know, these this is just, it's just one unintended consequence of using data. When you start putting multiple data sets together, unintended consequences can happen more and more easily and, and more and more frequently. And so there are definitely real concerns about this. And it's something that in what we're instilling in our programs and our students and all of the culture of our new school is the notion that uh, indeed uh, we take all of this into account. And it's not just about giving students a course in ethics. It's really instilling in every single thing they do 
the notion uh, that this is, this is really important and the potential consequences should be considered at every step of the way. So we want to be responsible while, take, while undertaking science for the public good. That's what we mean. And that responsibility comes in different aspects of our guiding principles. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but you know, it's about excellence, integrity, diversity, openness and transparency, uh, fair data, which is the notion that you can find access, interoperate and reuse data, uh, innovation and for the social good. We have a unique opportunity. If you haven't noticed, uh, universities are quite conservative and changing a culture in a university is pretty difficult. We have a, an opportunity here by starting essentially from scratch to create something where the values are slightly different. We don't want to distort it too far because there's enormous value. But at the same time, what we value uh, is, is changing. An example would be, and it's a little sort of in the weeds, but the notion that producing this fancy scientific paper and publishing it and getting five citations, four of which you made of your own work, is, is essentially you know, pretty valueless relative to a data set the 100 different scientists might have used to do new and good science. What's more valuable? It's a no-brainer. But we don't value that data set right now. You go into a tenure committee and it's, ooh, he's published four papers in science. Oh, that's really good. But has anyone read them? No, but you know, he's published four. Yeah, okay. Enough I've said about that. I have, a, I have a strong feeling about this, which I won't get into. But anyway, I already have, sorry. Uh, so you know, what are the ethical consequences? Uh, they cover across the, the gamut. And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of the way we're thinking about this. And then you know, I, hopefully you'll push back on me with some uh, yelling out some thoughts and questions and things. But just the, the step of data acquisition. So you can think about what happens in this world of data science. It starts off, you acquire data, you engineer data, you analyze data, you, you disseminate and visualize it, and all of that has ethical consequences. So what are, what, what are we talking about here? Well, things like the census and surveys, they have, that has a lot of ethical consequences. That's data being collected. The data mining and digitization I mentioned in, in uh, you know, where in the world is Francis Bacon. Immediately, there's not an obvious, uh, perhaps, negativity associated with that. But wait till it's you, and someone's building a social network of you, unbeknownst to you, and knows where you are and where you've been and what you've done uh, at all times of day and night, which, of course, is sort of happening already. Um, and then, you know, uh, and then the, the ethical issues relate to the, the notion of mass surveillance the privacy terms of service, and who owns the data? Right now, you don't really own the data about yourself. Right? There's no data sovereignty. My gut feeling is that's where we're going to end up, is that you, it'll be a human right for you to own your own data. Everything that you generate, every breath you take, you own it, and it's up to you as to who you allow to access that and for what purposes. We ain't there yet, that's for sure. Uh, but that's, you know, that's coming. An example of this, of course, is something I was involved with at the NIH, which is called uh, the All of Us program. Is there anyone here involved, involved, enrolled in this program? Okay. Well, so far there are 250,000 people who are enrolled, and they've agreed under you know, privacy conditions to effectively make their, uh, all aspects of their health record available for research purposes. This relates, you know, it relates to genetic markers and such like. It relates to all kinds of medications and everything. And it's, it's you know, I have just a, a side story to tell you that I'm from a foreign country uh, that happened. When I was doing this, uh, I reported to Francis Collins, who was the director of the National Institutes of Health. He reported to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who reports to the president. This was President Obama. And Francis comes to me one day and says, I want you to write a brief, which is the intersection of genomics, big data, and precision medicine, which is the idea that every one of you is an, in, is an individual. You're not treated as an individual in the health system now. You all get the same dose of the medicine. You, you know, it doesn't really take any account of gender or ethnicity or any of these things, which are really important. Okay? I said, okay, I'm happy to do that. And he said, who's it for? 
And I, he said, it's, I said, who's it for? He said, it's for the president. I said, oh, the president of what? And he said, POTUS. And I thought, oh. And I thought POTUS was some scientific society I'd never heard of. <laughs> I go back to my office and I, oh, it's the President of the United States. Okay. I better make sure there's no spelling mistake. Um, anyway, that's, that ultimately, I'm, to say that I had a big role in that would be an overstatement. By the time it went through so many layers of bureaucracy, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which frankly no longer really exists uh, in any meaningful way, uh, I'm not sure how much I wrote was left, but this is, a, you know, this is an example of certainly where good and bad things can happen. Right now, it's very controlled as to what happens to that health data, and it needs to stay that way. You need to own your health data. You don't really right now. You have a right to get a copy of it, but you don't own it. Okay, enough of that diatribe. Engineering, you know, when you put data together, the consequences of integration can be very negative. I showed you a positive example of taking DMV and health records, but there are negative consequences that can happen as well, you know, particularly revealing people's identity. This happens all the time. And there are you know, lots of really smart people trying to come up with ways to stop that happening. Um, so, and then the, the stuff that you've probably heard quite a lot about and you may know something about, which is the notion of the, the so-called machine learning, sort of part of artificial intelligence. I think you have to be very careful with this. There's some really fundamental and fantastic developments that are going on in this space. And it's come about because of its learning. And it's the machines, the tools, the algorithms are learning by virtue of all this data, this massive amount of data I've been telling you about. Right? So that has real positive consequences in some conditions. We're at the point now, for example, that an algorithm can predict the likelihood of, uh, for example, uh, a tumor in a, a set of breast cancer images or breast um, you know, images as well as a, as a radiologist, if not better in some cases. On the other hand, you don't want a machine uh, actually making that diagnosis. Maybe you want that machine assisting in the diagnosis, but you don't want it making the diagnosis. Where the shift between machine and humans switches is really interesting. The one that amuses me that I think about every time I get on that, God, that, that forsaken uh, people mover at Dulles Airport is, or on the train is no one thinks twice about getting on that monorail when it doesn't have a driver. But who's going to get in the plane without a pilot, right? <laughs> and, you know, but in fact, it's probably, a, you know, the majority of accidents in airplanes happen through I know there's been some Boeing incidents recently, but for the most part, it's because of human error. On the other hand, you don't want having, not having a human in the cockpit, except when I'm flying. You wouldn't want me in, the, in your cockpit, I can tell you that. All right, I'm, I'm blabbering on. So I think these kind of molds and simulations can be really powerful, but also have uh, consequences as well. We have to be very careful. And they're also not good at everything. They're good at certain things, where you've got lots of kind of data to learn from. Images is a good example. You know, facial recognition is now at the point where you know, it's, it's real time in an audience this big. So if there was a sensor here, it would detect exactly who all of you are within a second. Right? How that information is used is something you need to be thinking about. And then how you visualize and, and then use that data is clearly really important. We're in an era now where it's, it, data and, it's true and, and how it's represented is hardly used at all. When it is used, it can, be, it can be manipulated and used in different ways. So the ethical consequences of that are something that we need to instill in all our students as well. And that you know, leads to other things. So what's the take-home message for all of this? Uh, is society is changing. Forming a new school uh, is a rare opportunity, so let's do it right. We need your help to do that. We need your input. We need, you know, uh, tell us what we should be doing. Responsible data science involves working by a set of guiding principles and considering the consequences uh, of what we do is across that complete life cycle all day, every day. So if we do that, uh, then we really are truly undertaking data science for the public good. So what's the final take-home? The final take-home is you don't need a, f a fancy sports analytics algorithm to tell you who's going to win tonight.
So I, I would really like to hear some pushback, some thoughts, anything. Oh, my goodness, sorry. I remember. I was, I was behind, as usual. Yes, what I wanted to say is I met you on a hike, and I talked to you for a while. I'm sorry that I did that. But anyway, um, you shared that you do some – so it's a club, right, with the students? That's one part. And then the other question I had was I, I attended the uh, women's um, da data um, – Women in data science. Yes, and there was this question that was surprising to me. First of all, women right now could get any job. And so I wanted to know about your promotion with that for UVA. But also, they shared that they were thought of as imposters when they went to work. Well, I think you've raised some very interesting points. Uh, mm -hmm. Not about my hiking, which... Is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. Uh, the student clubs, I mean... There's, there's a lot of, well, first of all, the, the students are just incredible. I, I mean, I, we have a, in our shed, now the lawnmowers are gone, we have students and faculty, and we sit there, and I look in at their eyes, and there's just so much energy and excitement about, you know, in the future. And, that, you know, you go home and watch the news, you get a completely different story. But when you look into their eyes, it makes me think completely differently. And so how we, how we interact and work with the students. So clubs are really an important aspect of that. We have the notion of hackathons. Uh, I know we have vets here. We've actually had students do projects where we've looked uh, at vet data from the Veterans Administration, for example, where looking at uh, suicide rates and things like that. And what, what, what are the correlations with other types of data with suicide rates? It's clear, for example, that in rural areas where there's not support services, per capita, the, the suicide rate is higher. This came out of work from a student club, essentially. So, that, you know, really important things. And we, we try and support that, not just within the university, but there's Hack Seaville, which is uh, off-grounds, off uh, and a whole series of other activities. So that's important. With respect to women in data science and, in fact, minorities and underrepresented groups, um, it's, you know, I absolutely co we're committed to the notion that we don't follow the pathway that, frankly, the computer science and engineering have followed, where there isn't this sense of inclusion, this, this sense of belonging. Right now, uh, half, half of all the... Right now, I mean, it sounds very grandiose, but when I went to the to the Data Science Institute, there were five people. There are now 30. By the end of this year, there'll be 45. By the end of next year, there'll probably be 90. Right now, we're pretty even. We're not the, in terms of uh, minorities where I want us to be, but in terms of gender, we, we're, we're about 50-50. Um, and that's, that's pretty true of our student. We're not quite there with our student base, but we're, we're fairly close. So, you know, this is, this is really important to us. We have, we, right now, we have... Uh, an inclusion and, and, and council. We have a council of our, of our staff and faculty that actually consider this all the time. And in reformulating what we're doing for, under the, the notion of the school, there will be a committee that's, that's formed on this. We'll probably have a con hire someone, uh, particularly for diversity and inclusion, who will actually report directly to the dean. So that's the way we're trying to, you know. But frankly, it also starts way earlier than that. It starts, you know, in the K-12 space, and we really all have a responsibility to to make sure that we uh, that we, we maintain, uh, you know, the levels that we should of all, all types of people. Uh, uh, oh. Is this work? Yeah. Could you uh, address a few of the issues related to shared data? I mean, people sharing different data sets. Yeah. So, you know, the. I have examples of all of this, of course, that particularly in my own experience in medicine, you know, researchers don't necessarily share data sets. And that can have really detrimental effects. I have examples where there's no question that a number of people have died that could have been saved if the data had been shared earlier. I won't give you all the, bore you with all the details right now. I'd be happy to talk to you about it offline. But this is, you know, so I think there's, it's a two-edged two sword one is you want to maximally share data, 
Uh, on the other hand, you want to be secure in the way you do that. So it's a balance. And you know, we're, as data sharing is part of our mandate. So when we hire people, we're looking at ev for evidence that they, in their past careers, have shared data. We're going to promote people to tenure and these other things by not just with these papers that I made fun of before, which have some value, of course, but by what they actually share with the community and how they collaborate with the community. I haven't said anything about this, but you, know, you can get the sense that data science doesn't exist in its own right. It's a piece of statistics. It's a piece of computer science. It's a piece of applied mathematics. And it's applied across all disciplines. So it doesn't really have a life of its, you know, an essence of its own. It's everywhere. And I think in some ways that's what's really attracted all the other deans and the, the, and the leaders here to what we're doing because we're doing it across all of the grounds. We're putting satellites, these outlets in other schools to actually train data science. Sorry, I'm going, it's, not, it's a lot broader than your question. Um, but I'm going off on a rant, but I'll stop. But yes, the sharing of the data is, is a two-edged sword and it's very important. So, Phil, following up on that, um, uh, what, what are the specific areas that you are trying to build in terms of expertise in the school? What are the primary tertiary uh, areas that you really see as uh, vitally important? Well, to the point I made earlier about the fact we can't do everything, we need to pick a subset of things and do them well. And the things that we've decided to focus on are things where we feel that we can have the greatest societal benefit. So just today, I was talking about a joint hire we're going to do uh, with environmental science. So clearly, you know, environment is very important. Education, we've already started an effort in educational analytics with Curry, where we're, because you know, we're, there's a lot of data that's available on student performance, its relationship to student health, its relationship to location, all sorts of things that really can actually improve the student experience. So education is another area. Cybersecurity is clearly really important to the future of our country. So you know, these are just examples. Biomedicine uh, is another one, particularly as it relates to something that affects me pretty badly, which is neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, so the idea that we, uh, we're, we're actually studying that, and that's there's huge amounts of data science in that. We've got folks looking at doing brain imaging tying it into various types of, uh, well, obviously, uh, things like Alzheimer's disease, but also looking at it in the context of, uh, of emotion and a whole series of other things. And lastly, I'm sorry, I'm going on, but lastly, democracy. You know, how, you know, how can, you know, we, we're examining the role. We, we looked at events around Twitter feeds and Facebook uh, as it related to the events that happened in Charlottesville a couple of years ago. Uh, we're actually looking at the emergence of democracies by... You know, what can we learn from Twitter feeds as democracies? What, is it, what, are the what are the leading indicators of the way a democracy is developing just by virtue of what people are tweeting? I mean, you know, this, this is pretty... This, I could go on and on, but those are the kind of main, main areas. You're speaking of, of having a master's degree of data science. What type of undergraduate are you attempting to recruit into this? Since it does go over so many... It can be used in almost any field. Yeah, that's a very good question. So uh, we, we're in the process right now. Well, for the first thing to follow this is a PhD program, but putting that aside, you asked about undergraduate. I've been working with the leadership here for a while now on uh, an undergraduate certificate in data science, which would really be involved in developing core competencies without prerequisites. So any student and the undergraduate could take this. Right, so we've been working this. This will probably go to the state body this year um, if all goes well. It's a little scary, uh, and it relates to some of the other things I've said. There's a course like this that's offered at Berkeley. It's called Data 8. A thousand students take that class. You know, if we suddenly you know, we have this enormous number of students who want to take this, you know, we, we've got to gear up for this. So we've got to bring it in uh, in stages and, and so on. But that's, that's sort of where we're going. Following that will be a minor, uh, and following that will be a four-year degree. And so your point about the fact that you know, th this relates to courses that go on all over the grounds, uh, a lot of those, particularly in the lower division, the first two years, will be offered uh, by other schools. So that this is a way of sort of certainly 
sh you know, working together and sharing uh, the load and also the intellect that comes from it and doing it in a cooperative way. So I mean, in some ways, data science offers this catalyst to break down the barriers between, frankly, and it's not just, trust me, it was at the NIH, I can tell you that. But in any institution, there are, like, there are silos. You can call them cylinders of excellence, but they're basically silos. And so the idea that we kind of begin to break some of that down and, and actually uh, see developments across, because that's really where the future lies. Problems that we need to solve now are co more complex than any given discipline alone can address. It has to be done cooperatively. And you know, we, we feel that we can help that process. We can catalyze some of that cooperativity. Could you just mention, you had talked about, I'm right here. <laughs> you had talked about um, the reuse of data and serendipitous findings from data. And much of this data would be in, involved personal data, health data, educational data, and so on. How are you going to deal with, or how do you deal with, the consent issue? Because most of the time, data is collected, and you get a consent. And in fact, we have entire uh, committees at universities that deal with human subject research. Yeah, IRB, yeah. So, so how do you deal with, uh, you know, if you give a blanket consent, you've essentially eliminated the notion of ownership of your own data. So if you, on the other hand, you can't go out and get a consent from somebody who you don't have a way of identifying anymore. So how, how are you going to deal with all of those consent issues? Well, so the consenting of data use is a, a very important topic. And I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, frankly, that well dealt with. I mean, as you point out, we have, uh, you know, we have entities within our institutions that deal with this that we don't actually have necessarily the level of data governance uh, on data that we need to have. You're, you're kind, you didn't say explicitly, but you're really more referring, I think, to health data, but it applies you know, broadly, right? I mean, examples of when you get data that talk about rare species, for example, and their locations, do you want to, you want to publish that so people start going trampling on these rare, you know, there's a million examples like that. So uh, we have to, we have to, proceed carefully and it's unfortunately I don't want to you know make light of it because it is a severe problem and you know I think most institutions and policies and laws are way behind the curve for what's happening today we see that all the time you know I've said to <laughs> I'm not going to be saying this I'll be fired I'll be fired um, but you know I said after I mentioned to you how you know when we first talked to Jim Ryan about the school uh, he wanted to prove that it could be viable uh, when, he was, when he was convinced of that, he was all behind it. And I said, you know, Jim, we're now in this position where you're supporting us in turning out the, the highest quality data science students. I'm not so sure we have that many reasons to hire them because, first of all, we haven't yet come... This is not a criticism of UVA. It's actually every institution. But, you know, the, the leading-edge institutions are, are figured out. They haven't figured out the solutions necessary to these problems, but they've figured out some of the uses of the less contentious data to actually improve the institution, which is a different question than you're asked. That's what we need to be doing here as well, to actually improve the, the student, the faculty, the, the, the experience. But with respect to a consenting issue, there are, you know, the no, first of all, consent is, is very cumbersome, typically. Right? In this All of Us program that this, where they're collecting uh, data uh, on, you know, you volunteer data, there's a very simple, a, very, a relatively simple consenting process. It's, you know, but that, that, you know, once you've done that, you're right. You've consented to its use. You still, in that context, you still, the data is still yours, but you've allowed other people mm. to use it under certain conditions. And you know, in, the, in the scientific world more generally, you know, the idea is that for non-sensitive data, if you use someone else's data, you, you need, there's different levels of access, but you at the very least need to attribute it, you've used that data and attribute it to the pe people who it belongs to or, or who, if it's, well, the, the, who generated it in the first place. That's a long waffling way of saying we don't have good answers to what you're asking, and it's an issue. My question... What, what plans or uh, do you have in place or, or planning for partnerships or associations with industry. I'm with a firm that, given the demand right now, 
could hire every data scientist that you produce. Yeah, for another internships good and other things. That yeah. So we we are committed to having partnerships with the private sector to the point of having again this comes back to we have to be careful about ethical consequences and all the rest of it but in principle actually having private sector entities in our facilities because for a number of reasons first of all a lot of the really uh, fundamental work in this area frankly has not been done in universities so far it's been done in the private sector we'd be crazy not to bring that in so the idea that we have professors of practice who come from industry and teach our students and give them that perspective is an important aspect of it. What we do more generally is the idea that we start by, build, by building trusted relationships, which starts small typically. So we have programs now, Capstone, so the students have a work with a client where the two or three students work together on a problem, a data science problem, with a variety of different companies in the private sector for the virtually nine of their 11-month program. And, that's, uh, and, that, and then in a fraction of the cases, those, those companies uh, in, you know, offer the students jobs. At the very least, so they've got a conduit to our work like the workforce. Our students get trained on real-world problems. So it's kind of a win-win in that regard. And that's just the beginning, right? So that's, that builds a little trust. Then we start to build on that. So we're, we're part of uh, the formation of the new school is to have our own um, uh, director of, of advancement who's also going to do corporate relations. That's actually being done in conjunction with uh, the, the advancement, the vice president for uh, uh, advancement, Mark Llewellyn's office and John Jeffries. Um, and, you know, because there's, there's a lot of opportunity here. So it's building on those trusted relationships and building something bigger. And I'd be happy to talk to you offline about a couple of things that are bubbling up to be bigger already. But that's, that's sort of the process we're using. Final thank, question. Thank you for all your questions. I really appreciate it. It makes it much more fun for me. One more question. Uh, actually, I'll try, hopefully it won't be quick. But um, actually, <laughs> it, it picks, it, it fe in some ways, your ending about the corporate answer gets it. My concern is about a discussion about values and where the kind of humanistic piece gets en enters into the curriculum. I know you call ethics is a version of this, but it's not it's it's really about how to question both how the, sort of how do, what questions do you want to ask about data, what kinds of data you look for, how you even quiz the question, how do you even analyze the data the data you have to understand what may not be there or may be there. And then how do you think about how it's going to be used? And I guess I, I, I wonder where that conversation, if and how that conversation takes place. Well, I tried to illustrate that with those different examples of, of, the, of the, the, the process of the, that you go through with data, which is the acquisition, the engineering, the analysis, the visualization, dissemination. All of that has very significant consequences. Um, and I think we need to look at that. And uh, frankly, you know, I, I don't think that certainly in, a sta in standard programs, uh, uh, STEM programs, enough effort and enough thought goes into that. And I think we really need to understand. We, so one of the, the side effects of what's happened uh, those thus far in forming the school was the notion that there was at one point that the social and behavioral sciences and the humanities felt that they were being a bit left out of this. And I'm saying, no, this is the absolute critical part of it. It's a virtuous cycle where, yes, we might be able to come up with some quantitative techniques that are going to help those fields, but the human factor and what they know, and you know, we, they, need to, they need to be teaching us how to do much better than what we're doing right now. And so it's kind of a virtuous cycle as I see it. But, you know, so we need this kind of input. And, you know, we're building this into our programs and having faculty that, well, I didn't mention this, but one of the things we're doing is making a lot of joint appointments. So that uh, a faculty member has an appointment with us, but they also, for example, have a 50% appointment uh, in another uh, school or in the college. We really want those appointments to be with, with social behavior and other kinds of humanity, human, humanitarian scientists that are actually going to help us in this, this way. Don't have all the answers, but I think we need to start thinking about the infrastructure to, to make that happen. Be happy if you've got ideas for that, I'd be happy to hear them.
Thank you. On behalf of Lifetime Learning and um, the Alumni Association, we want to thank you for volunteering your time today. Oh, thank you. And if you'd like to do the honors and pull um, a raffle prize winner Ooh. out of the box. All right. Digging deep, digging deep. It's blank. Oh. oh, it's a blank one. Hang on. It really is blank. I'm being very ethical here. Who, who had the blank one? <laughs> the suspense is there. I need my, I don't actually need my glasses. Mike Daniel. Mike Daniel. All right. Thank you all. Enjoy the game. Go Hoos.